trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, So much to talk about. Actually, I should say so much relevant stuff to talk about. It's so hard to choose sometimes. What exactly will be the focus for today? But let's just go ahead and dive right in. Look, the, the whole goal of this show, if you're just tuning in for the first time, you want to see what it's all about. This is about just owning your worldview, thinking for yourself. Yes, I am the kind of, uh, I'm the kind of guy who is, uh, I'm into things like brainwashing people into thinking for themselves. My goal is to take over the world and leave it alone. Actually, I don't, I don't seek power, but I think uh, we have a real problem on our hands, and a lot of it could be solved if people were just a little more skeptical, a little more willing to question the narrative, and, and a little less willing to be spoon-fed whatever they're supposed to think by blow-dried spinmeisters. Lord knows there's plenty of those out there. There's also some fun to be had along the way. And by the way, I have to give credit to, uh, to the Babylon Bee, the funniest headline that I've seen. It's a, it's a photo of Tucker Carlson from his uh, home studio. The headline says, Unemployed guy's basement selfie video crushes Fox News in primetime ratings. Which apparently it did. I think the last I heard there was something in the neighborhood of 18 million views within 24 hours. That's insane. So for I know I know Tucker's living in a lot of people's heads rent free right now. Some for good, some for bad. But uh, this is one of those instances where yeah, Fox News. Well, you know it's a big platform, and there's this is uh, you. There's no denying you know his his reach has been curtailed. His mainstream media reach has been curtailed. But what, uh, what I think people are perhaps missing is the opportunity is there. I mean, for crying out loud, Joe Rogan. You know what happened when he was deplatformed from his mainstream platform? Oh, wait, he wasn't. He, he built his own platform and actually crushes regularly all of the networks. In fact, I think at one point, Rogan's audience on, on the regular for each episode averaged greater than the, all the other different networks combined. So the big question here is, okay, is, is mainstream news... Is it on its way out? Probably not. And I say that only from the standpoint of it's not because, uh, well, they're providing a valuable service that the market is seeking after. It's more like they're doing a job that people in power really want done. And so part of that comes down to they're going to uh, wed themselves to the the people in power in order to curry favor, in order to have job security. And and as long as there are people in power, you know, they're going to have a job because there's a narrative to be managed. In fact, <clears throat> I want to give you an example of what that looks like. Now, I don't want to make it sound like I'm stumping for Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, but uh, here is a primetime interview with ABC News. And I'm going to just play a couple of excerpts from, from the very beginning of this interview. I want you to catch the hostile tone of the interview. Not that they needed to be asking him, uh, you know, softball questions. But listen to how this this young lady goes after him. This is just crazy. You've said in the past that there is a, a correlation between uh, vaccines leading to autism that's totally been 
debunked. Wait a minute, who debunked it? We have not seen any kind of scientific connection from the CDC, the World Health Organization, but, the but National those Academy of Sciences. are captive agencies, Lindsay. And so you think they're all in cahoots? Yeah, they're all captive. You've discussed the Kennedy family as like any family, there are disagreements. But I think what makes it different here is that several of your relatives have not just said that they disagree with you, but they've called you dangerous. And as you're probably well aware, there were two of your siblings and a niece who wrote in a Politico article back in 2019. He's helped to spread dangerous misinformation over social media and is complicit in sowing distrust of science behind vaccines. We stand behind him in his ongoing fight to protect our environment. However, on vaccines, He's wrong. You're okay, I'm going to stop it there as far as... So you get kind of the tone of the interview. That's not the remarkable part, though. In fact, what I want to share with you, what I think is is the really remarkable part of this, and this, this comes at the end of the interview. And keep in mind, this is ABC News telling us, okay, well, uh, actually, you know, there, there are parts of this interview that, that we didn't even air because we considered it misinformation. You got to check this out. This, this is just... It's, it's one of the most egregious examples that I can think of that, uh, you know, they're, they're saying the quiet part out loud. And to me, it's, it's we don't trust you to make up your own mind. Check this out. This is, this is absolutely remarkable. Consistent democracy. So this is the last of his comments. We should note that during our conversation, Kennedy made false claims about the COVID-19 vaccines. Data shows that the COVID-19 vaccines prevented millions of hospitalizations and deaths from the disease. He also made misleading claims about the relationship between vaccination and autism. Research shows that vaccines and the ingredients used for the vaccines do not cause autism, including multiple studies involving more than a million children and major medical associations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the advocacy group autism speaks we've used our editorial judgment and in not including extended portions of that exchange in our interview we thank mr kennedy for the conversation yeah it's too dangerous you 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 can't even be allowed to consider this yourself because well who knows you know it's 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 misinformation and you you might you might be misled or you know conversely you might actually uh, say hey wait a minute that makes sense. By the way, um, I don't know who the young lady is, the the um, reporter who was was interviewing him. But wow, could it be more robotic? These are the talking points which we were supposed to say, and we're going to say this. And I mean, the only thing missing was you know you know a laser dot on the side of her head from somebody off stage holding a gun on her. That's right. Say it. Read the script. Read it. I mean, she couldn't have been more mechanical about uh, reciting those talking points if she had a knife sticking in her ribs. You know, now come on, say the words, just say the words. Look, my point is simply this. You can watch mainstream news and, and you might learn a thing or two. But if you still believe, well, they're here to inform us and they're here to keep us, you know, from being deceived by dangerous people like RFK Jr. Uh-uh. Nope. <clears throat> mainstream media outlets are there to keep you within the safe narrative that, that people in power want you to believe. And, you know, they'll, they'll go to great lengths to do this. There, There's, there's such an, a concerted effort right now between <clears throat> how mainstream media reports what it calls the news and <clears throat> how social media platforms also have teamed up to throttle any point of view that could be considered dangerous to the people who are in power. Anything that could get you to doubt what they're telling you. So I'm just going to be blunt and just tell you, you have to doubt them. <clears throat> if you want to maintain your autonomy, if you want to, if you want to have any semblance of freedom, 
you've got to be willing to break from the crowd, possibly go out there, you know, into dangerous territory, skate onto the thin ice, and think about things for yourself. But I'm not an expert, Brian. How can I do that? You know, I'm not an epidemiologist. You don't have to be. What you need to be is a person who is aware that people will manipulate information for their own gain and to, to their advantage. You need to be aware of what your rights are. And I'm talking about, when I say rights, I'm talking about your God-given or inalienable rights that limit government power over you. As you're going to see a little bit later in the show, we'll talk about how right now there's a very concerted effort to whitewash the COVID response. And they're grudgingly admitting, well, you know, it appears that some mistakes were made, but gee, you know, no, nobody knows how it happened. Okay, I can't take credit because I'm just one tiny voice among lots of voices, but there were plenty of us who were calling BS on this from the very beginning. And it wasn't because I'm an expert, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist either. But I recognize when people are saying you have to do this and you can't think about it. And in fact, now we're going to try to, to stifle whatever information you might have at your fingertips to, to show you that what we're asking of you is, is unreasonable. And by unreasonable, I'm talking about everything from, you know, well, we need to wipe down every surface every five minutes to make sure that the virus isn't there. That turned out to be false. The distancing, the one-way arrows in the, the supermarket aisles, unnecessary. The masking, unnecessary. The vaccines, oh boy, here we go. I'm sorry, but uh, that, that was not the solution that it was portrayed to be. And, and it's not that I'm clairvoyant. I don't have, I'm not the smartest guy in the room by a long shot. But there were sure some, some credible voices out there saying, whoa, let's take a second and look at this a little bit more closely. Let's question before we leap from this bridge as to whether that water down there is really deep enough or if it's only an inch deep. And we're going to break our backs when we land in it. But still, you know, the gaslighting continues. Well, you know, but it really was okay. And, you know, they only did what they had to do. When, when you hear talk about the, the mental health devastation, the economic devastation, just the, the whole uprooting of, of our, our country, it's always, well, that's because of a virus. No, it's not. It's because of people, power-seeking opportunists who saw fear and used it to their advantage to gain control over people. It's not that they didn't have any other alternatives. They only saw the alternative. We need to take more power and tell people what to do. And the sad thing is they convinced a lot of people to go along. In fact, they convinced a lot of people to enforce it. And it was all unnecessary. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Since I'm on a little bit of a roll here, as, as far as uh, I've, I've got that, uh, let's let's call out the uh, COVID lockdowners and wonder when will they ever be held accountable. And by accountable, I hope you understand. Some people think that's a very ominous thing to say. What do you mean accountable? Are you standing there with a, with a rope looking for a tall tree? No. I'm saying what needs to happen is the people who push these kinds of policies, whether they be unelected bureaucrats or whether they be elected bureaucrats, they need to be separated from power. They need to have their power taken away. If that means firing them, then fire them. 
but they cannot be allowed to impose this on us again. And they will. The first opportunity that they get, the next crisis that comes up, they'll say necessity dictates we just have to do this. You know, I I know I'll sound like a radical for saying this, but my line is drawn. I, I, I grudgingly went along with some things for the sake of, okay, I'm not going to go, you know, get after people for, for something, you know, like the, the masking stuff. I'll, I'll give you an example. There, when I go to my local Walmart, there is the, the kindest guy who is there as a greeter. I see him every time I go in, and uh, I, I just can't help but feel love for this guy. And yet every time I go in, you know, I see that he's, he's still thoroughly masked up and 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 i'm not saying this like boy he's he sure is dumb to do i'm just saying for some people it it has become almost a part of their persona this become part of who they are they wouldn't dare go out into public without a mask because they've been convinced that this is the only way to be a responsible person or this is what's best you know and and in the interest of their health it makes me sad i hope it doesn't sound like I'm, i'm judging the guy i really uh, he, he is so kind and he is so pleasant every time that I see him. But I also see that mask and I just think, what's going on there? You know, I see people, you know, I still see people occasionally out driving around alone in their car with a mask. And uh, again, I, I'm not saying that they're stupid. I'm not saying that they're evil. If anything, it makes me wonder about the mendacity of the people who convince them that this is the responsible thing to do. And this is how you show that you're a good human being. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not there anymore. I'm not in the place where, yep, okay, well, you know, I know that the, I have my doubts, but I'll just go ahead and put this on to, to, you know, placate people. I can't. I cannot participate in the lie, and I'm suggesting that uh, the more people who stand up and, and make that, uh, that commitment, the quicker we can, the quicker we can, can put a stop to this kind of nonsense. I sure hope so. All right, let's talk about the Washington Post whitewashing the COVID response. This is an article from Bill Rice. This was published on the Brownstone Institute website. He says the Washington Post editorial board just published a big article looking back at America's COVID response. And the editorial's authors use a report from a team of, quote, seasoned experts to frame what America's leaders did right and wrong in said response. Now, as a quick aside, he says, I note that the Washington Post's motto is democracy dies in darkness. And indeed it does. In fact, people who live in a democracy can and do literally die when society's major watchdog newspapers refuse to shine any light on dangerous falsehoods. So he says, I'll start with a sentence from the first paragraph of the editorial. But a closer examination by a team of seasoned experts has brought to the surface a profoundly unsettling conclusion. The United States, once the paragon of can-do pragmatism, of successful moonshots and biomedical breakthroughs, fell down on the job in confronting the crisis. The pandemic, experts say, revealed a collective national incompetence in government. End quote. Michael Rice says the aforementioned seasoned experts did reach a few common sense conclusions. For example, the seasoned experts acknowledge that the virus was not spread via physical surfaces, rather, And we didn't really need those six feet separation laws. That is, grocery stores that were forced to spend money to affix decals every six feet saying this, they didn't actually need to do this. Also, the seasoned experts now say people could probably have gone outside after all. For all the mandates the government experts botched, at least they got the vaccine right. 
the Post readers are told with certainty. So here are a few quick rebuttal statements. From the editorial, quote, the pandemic also found the United States navigating without critical information about the virus and how it was moving. Timing was hard when authorities could not track the virus spread. Okay, here's his response. He says, as I keep pointing out, our trusted CDC experts said the virus hadn't even reached America until latter January 2020. That is, every one of our trusted experts completely missed the first months of virus spread. It never occurred to any of them that many people, many sick people with COVID ILI symptoms may have already had COVID. From the editorial, quote, the United States and other nations don't have to rely on nations that may be unwilling to sound an alarm, as was the case with China, which covered up the spreading virus in the early weeks, allowing it to explode into a pandemic. Now, here he follows up with a question. Well, if China covered up a spreading virus, which this government probably did, didn't America's health officials and virus sleuths do the exact same thing? A big shout out to the vaccine developers from the editorial. The United States did some things well, the experts conclude, such as the crash vaccine development and manufacturing effort. Operation Warp Speed, which was a bargain at sixty billion or I'm sorry, thirty billion dollars. Okay, the comment here is the worst thing our officials did develop an unsafe and ineffective vaccine is touted as the one thing that our experts did well. And again, for what it's worth, the vaccine wasn't even a real vaccine. Real vaccines actually prevent diseases and stop infections and spread. Whew, that one's going to leave a mark. That warp speed bargain shot is now producing record numbers of excess deaths, hospitalizations, and life-altering or disabling mental condi- medical conditions rather in, ter- in tens of millions of Americans. Those are the real results we got from that $30 billion bargain. Now, for what it's worth, those results, per the Post's nonstop efforts, remain in the darkness. In other words, they don't want to talk about it. These shots were given to healthy children who have a 0.00 mortality risk from COVID. And the same experts are still encouraging everyone to get their boosters, even though 85% of the population that got their first two shots is saying, no thanks, I think I'll pass on those. Also from the editorial. The administration abdicated its wartime responsibility to lead. It left the battlefield and the war strategy to states and localities. Now, his comment here is, see how the authors approve of the wartime approach of government leaders? Also, how real democracy hates it when state or local governments possess real authority or reject federal guidance? This was the World War II of pandemics. Every agency and corporation had to be mobilized. Every citizen had to do his or her part to fight this war. If you didn't do your part and didn't believe 100% in the dictates of our rulers... You were a very bad citizen and deserve rather the Gestapo treatment you received. Wars are fought to repel menaces who can conquer your country and kill kill anyone and everyone if the Crusaders aren't defeated. In a full-blown, high-stakes war, every citizen is mobilized and the government takes charge of virtually every activity. Such is the prescription these experts endorse and want us to follow when the next pandemic arrives and the next World War III pandemic will arrive. So, recommendation restated. Do what we say. Listen to the experts. We'll handle everything. You and your children will die if you don't listen to us. And here's the one concrete solution. More science and health bureaucracy. Not surprisingly, the one recommendation they have is to create a super new bureaucratic agency, which we can all be sure will save us when the next crisis arrives. 
Now he says, I don't know if the pen, if the post has penned an editorial on this initiative yet, but you know, we can be sure that the papers editors believe we all need to support life-saving reform as they call it as well. Now they don't call for a Nuremberg 2.0 type tribunal to tar and feather and imprison all the experts who created the most unnecessary crisis in the world's history. In the post-democracy-affirming, bright-light world, our obtuse experts have nothing to worry about being spectacularly for being spectacularly wrong. And Bill Rice says, I shouldn't even have to bother reading the full report, but I know what it says. It says our experts should have done better, but they will do better with the next crisis as long as we give these proven morons and psychopaths even more control and more power. I've got a link to this in the show notes. It's, it's well worth your time to take a look and follow some of the hyperlinks within. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I uh, fully realize that uh, I am in full rant mode today. I apologize for that. There's uh, This has been kind of an intense week. I think I have been busier and more overextended than uh, than I can recall in a long time. It's it's an interesting thing. The difficulty level of life got dialed up here a couple of months ago for me, and it, it hasn't slowed down one bit. But uh, but if you can can bear with me occasionally, getting a little bit uh, excitable. I, I will still do my best to, to try to bring you some uh, timely, credible, hopefully thought-provoking and empowering information. And one of those stories that crossed my uh, my news feed earlier today comes courtesy of uh, LouRockwell.com, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. And uh, I'll set it up this way. If you're concerned the U.S. government isn't doing enough to uh, destabilize the world and disrupt your personal life, take heart. <laughs> yeah, they're about to uh, start a new in- initiative. Doug Casey is warning the Jacobins in charge are about to declare war on the Mexican drug cartels. Now, this is an interview with international man who talks to Doug. They say there's been a recent push by some U.S. politicians of the neocon variety to use the U.S. military against Mexican drug cartels. Senator Lindsey Graham has proposed designating them as terrorist organizations. Representative Dan Crenshaw introduced an authorization for use of military force to target drug cartels inside Mexico. And they asked Doug, what is your take on this? Doug Casey says that's just what the U.S. needs. Another war and this one on the border. He says people who back the use of military force in Mexico can only be described as thoughtless warmongers with no grasp of either ethics or history. If the war against organizations like the Taliban in Afghanistan was a world-class disaster... Would an invasion work out better in Mexico, which has three times the population of Afghanistan, is much richer and much better organized? And they're right on the border, which is really asking for trouble. Now, his solution here is not going to sit well with some people, but hear him out. Doug Casey says the solution to the drug cartel problem is to legalize all drugs. The fact is that anybody who wants drugs today can get them easily, even if they're in a high-security prison. From a practical point of view, making drugs illegal doesn't work. All it does is greatly increase the price of drugs in the U.S. and create huge profit margins to import them. Even if you destroyed every cartel in Mexico, people that want drugs will still want them, and as long as drugs are illegal, the prices will remain high, new cartels will arise. 
But despite the relaxation of penalties on cannabis, it's highly unlikely drugs will be legalized. The DEA, one of the most corrupt federal agencies, is a permanent lobby to keep them illegal. And there's way, way too much money in keeping them illegal. By the way, that even trickles down to your local level. He says the only solution is to learn a lesson from prohibition in the 1930s. When they illegalized alcohol in the 1920s, it created the profits that allowed the mafia to grow. It certainly didn't cut down the amount on the amount of drinking. It just increased the amount of crime. Similarly, the insane war on drugs is responsible for the success of the cartels. They say fentanyl, an important medical drug, kills 50,000 to 100,000 Americans per year. That's mostly because its quantity and quality are uncertain, a consequence of its illegality. But he says the real question is ethical. Does government have a right to protect people against themselves? Doug Casey says my answer is no. If people like it, it's their body and their business. Prohibition of alcohol, which is also quite a dangerous drug, was costly, destructive, immoral, and stupid. Fentanyl, the current bet noir of busybodies, is no different. If drugs were as easily available as aspirins through pharmacies, users would know what they were getting, and people who want them could get them at a cheap price in known doses. Apart from recognizing that you can't protect people from themselves, it's important to look at the root of why many people get lost in drugs. And Doug says the answer, I believe, is that they're trying to hide from reality and blot it out. Why is that? See, that's a subject for another conversation, but the irrationality and coercion caused by state intervention in private lives are part of the answer. Next, international man says, well, Mexican President Obrador has stated he will not allow the U.S. government or military to enter Mexican territory. It's also well known that Mexican cartels have a significant presence inside the U.S. Suppose the U.S. government sends the military into action in Mexico anyway. What do you think could happen? Doug Casey says, well, it certainly wouldn't be the first time the U.S. has invaded Mexico. In the 1840s, the U.S. basically stole all the territory in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California from Mexico. I know you shouldn't say that. It sounds unpatriotic. But he says, patriotism should be focused on American values, not necessarily on supporting the actions of politicians in Washington. In the Marine Corps hymn, one of the lines is from the halls of Montezuma because U.S. forces were actually fighting in Mexico City. It happened more recently when, during the Mexican Revolution in the 1910s, Pancho Villa raided across the Rio Grande and General Pershing's troops crossed into, excuse me, crossed into Mexico to unsuccessfully pursue him. There's pr- plenty of precedent for Americans invading Mexico, but perhaps the shoe was on the other foot now. 20 or more million Mexicans live in the U.S., mostly in the Southwest, and believe it or not, many of them talk about a reconquista. It's uncertain what effect it will have on the U.S. border if warmongers like the smarmy and foolish little Lindsey Graham succeed in fomenting an invasion of Mexico. It could turn into a counter-invasion, an active shooting war unnecessarily created to quash the Mexican drug business, which, insofar as it's even a real problem, is a U.S. problem. So the next question is, okay, well, no matter what happens with the U.S. military in Mexico, the situation at the border remains a mess. What do you think should be done? Doug Casey says the violence of the cartels is said to be one of the motivators for migration to the U.S. There appear to be at least one to two million people, nobody has the exact number, annually migrating from Mexico and other places into the U.S. 
Once they arrive, many become wards of the vast U.S. welfare system. It's a problem. But he says the solution, as with so many social ills, is strict observance of property rights. That implies the border should be defended. Why? Well, because the migrants usually cross the privately owned land of Americans. They have no right to to trespass. Even when the land is owned by the federal or state government, they have no right to trespass. It's a question of strictly enforcing property rights. Now, there's a sign that often appears out west. If you're found here at night, you'll be found here in the morning. Doug says that's a justified sentiment. Entering the U.S., or more importantly, onto anyone's private property without permission is a serious offense. Property rights are the basis of all rights. Now, he says it's hard to know exactly, but I suspect a major attraction to migrants is they know that once in the country, they're basically guaranteed free food, medical care, schools, housing, and other forms of welfare. That attracts the wrong kind of people. The immigrants of the 19th century were also penniless, but got absolutely nothing when they came to the U.S. Now, migrants get lots of freebies, and part of the answer is to eliminate any and all types of welfare for both Americans and immigrants, as well as strict enforcement of property rights. Next, international man says renowned trends forecaster Gerald Salente has said, when all else fails, they take you to war. Do you agree? Doug Casey says Gerald Salente is absolutely correct. Looking at America's war history when the U.S. fought Germany and Japan, those countries were transformed because they were totally flattened, devastated, and dispirited. That made it easy to reform them in the image that the U.S. government wanted. In the Korean War, which was really a war fought against China on Korean territory, the U.S. dropped more bombs than in all of World War II. The country was totally flattened, and South Korea transformed itself in the image that we wanted. But Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and for that matter, Vietnam, were more on the order of sport wars against primitive countries. They were all embarrassing disasters. What kind of war are we looking at with Mexico? Will Washington flatten the country in order to change its, its government? Well, he says, I question whether the Mexicans will accept that. Or will Washington get involved in a protracted guerrilla war where drug gangs are designated as terrorists? Randolph Bourne was right when he said, war is the health of the state. He robotically equates the health of the state with the health of America. Either way, Doug Casey says it's a bad idea for America, but Washington isn't America. The deep state will, however, find somebody to fight. Unfortunately, it looks like Russia and China are next on the dance card. Although they could certainly add Mexico to the naughty list while further bankrupting and corrupting the U.S., So, the U.S. government is increasingly designating any real or imagined enemy du jour, whether it's drug cartels or the Russians or foreign separatist movements or various American citizens, as terrorists. And Doug says once someone is termed a terrorist, the gloves are off and it becomes possible to commit any kind of crime to combat him. So, he says it's really important that you protect yourself. He actually recommends vacate the premises until it becomes safe to live in the U.S. again. That's a sobering thought. He says, let me emphasize the importance of having a second residency or second citizenship in case the U.S. goes the direction of so many countries in the past. And it's not just the U.S., he says. Many Western countries are becoming quite repressive. Well, we have genuine Jacobins controlling the government. There's no telling who's going to be elected or what they're going to do. And since we're likely going to be in the middle of a huge financial, economic, political, social, and military crisis... Anything is possible, but he also says little of it is good. 
That's some pretty straight talk, I know. It kind of sends a little chill up my spine too, but I'd rather know than not. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to thank you for uh, for bearing with me today. I feel like I'm running on fumes, and, and I'm I'm not looking for sympathy here. I'm just saying this is this has been it's been a pretty trying week, and uh, not not that I'm in some kind of crisis, but just whew, I just feel very stretched thin, and and it is it's catching up with me health wise. I feel it catching up, but uh, it's it's important that where I have the opportunity to share what I hope is good, useful information that I go ahead and do it. So um, it, I have to be I have to be pretty down on my luck to, to say, you know what, I'm taking a day off. I just don't know that I can do this. But I've got a couple things I wanted to share with you in this closing segment of the show. Um, I know this is kind of a, a dog whistle for some people, but I'm really astonished when I look at how hard LGBTQ plus activism has been working to convince kids that they're part of the family. And apparently, there, I just saw this uh, yesterday, an article saying that one in four members of Generation Z, high school kids actually right now, say that they are LGBTQ. Now, personally, I'm thinking that uh, this is this is more of a mind virus. This is more of a social thing and, and a social contagion where kids are like, yeah, 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 I am too, just because it's trendy. As opposed to, no, no, they seriously are. But there can be no denying that uh, the the onslaught of propaganda, you know, both in popular culture, in, in the libraries. Oh, my goodness. The libraries. You don't want to have these books teaching kids how to perform oral sex on each other. You know, it's, it's, it's just an affront to burn books. It's, it's so out in the open, and it's being aimed so directly at kids. Teachers agitating in the classroom. I mean, the libs of TikTok. People hate her for what she has brought out. But I think it bears mentioning that everything that she has shown is always in the own words and videos of these activists themselves. It's not like she's editorializing, well, here's what they really mean. No, they'll tell you what they really mean. When your kid is in my classroom, I will be recruiting them and trying to, to bend them to uh, join the Rainbow Mafia or the pronoun gang. So here's the question. With all of these activists working so hard to convince your kids that they're part of the family, how can you rescue your child if he or she is being seduced by them? This is a, I, I've in, I'm including a link to a Twitter thread unroll that, uh, that I stumbled across earlier. And it, it really, I think, offers some good information. How could we save our, how we could save our son? And this is from a, a mother who's talking about, um, our sensitive, loving, vulnerable son believed he was a girl for two and a half years. So here's what we did. We took him off social media. We encouraged him to do sports or physical activity so he could reconnect with his body. We reinforced his self-esteem always, every hour, every day. By the way, that's different than reaffirming his, than affirming his, his gender, okay? We were generous at recognizing the best in him. We watched movies and documentaries about sects. S-E-C-T-S. Just want to make sure people understand that. Sects and indoctrination. We spent time in nature and value what is natural. 
We made our family dinners the most fun part of the day, listening to music, making jokes, remembering when he was little, anecdotes and family stories. We made ourselves his reference, not culture. We stretched our bond as much as we could. We discussed how everybody can change their minds about an idea they truly used to believe in. We talked about how growing up was for us, our fears and frustrations. We encouraged him to meet with his old friends, the ones that knew him better. They turned our house into a place where they could have pizza and good times. We showed him the positive things about being a man and the different kinds of men there are. We enjoyed his music together. We became experts in gender. We learned, read, had long talks about what we discovered and the impact on him. We avoided talking about the theory of gender and only talked about our position, which was prudence, in family counseling sessions. And then slowly and gently and loving, he started to live, to go out, to grow up. Today he is, well, relieved. His body is intact, and so is his future. Interestingly enough, there were some people who responded to this uh, Twitter thread. Well, you guys indoctrinated him into thinking he was a boy. Now, what they did was they provided a loving environment in which he could sort things out without making changes that cannot be undone. Anyway, I'm, I'm sharing this with you just because I know that there are people within the sound of my voice who have loved ones struggling with gender dysphoria. Um, I don't believe the tough love approach. Well, you just got to beat it out of them until they change their minds. I think what, uh, what this mom did is actually a really positive way to do it. And frankly, I don't, I don't want to see these young people. Look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush here, but when I see some of the, the videos, the TikTok videos that these transgender individuals do about how, how upset they are, how enraged they are that somebody would misgender them, I see broken individuals. I see real, legitimate pain in their eyes and confusion. And I don't think bringing more anger into the situation or bringing hatred into the situation is, is the way to go about, you know, countering this, this crusade to try to convince more and more people, hey, you may have this too, trying to convince kids, hey, this is, this is what you should be exploring as well. I do think detaching from culture, though, is, is one of the necessary things. And that doesn't mean that oh, my kid lives in a cage and you know, can't ever, ever do anything fun. It's finding something better to focus on. Nature, sports, family. That's, that's a healthy way to, uh, to stop this, this mind virus. All right, one last thing I want to share with you. This is a great article from Alexander Riley. Change yourself or change the world? There's a question for you. It's a perennial philosophical question. What's the best strategy for addressing life's problems? Change yourself or change the world? Alexander says in a clip from a few years ago that a student recently shared with me, a leftist public intellectual offered a take that my student apparently found convincing. Now, to judge from this intellectual's online popularity, a lot of other people agree with him. So he says, I promised my student that I'd watch the clip and give him a response. And here's that response. In this, uh, this uh, individual, this intellectual, challenges psychologist Jordan Peterson's insistence that one should set one's own house in order before turning to projects of world transformation. 
and the intellectuals suggest that one's house may not be in order because of larger societal problems. So, for example, he suggests that it seems absurd to tell people in North Korea to set their houses in order rather than turning to societal reform. But Alexander Riley says if we hadn't worked through a belief system of morality and ethics by setting our houses in order, how can we evaluate the society we're in? How will we know that our judgment about the morality of our or any other society can be reasonably justified if we have not done that internal setting-your-house-in-order work? A reliable moral compass is necessary to make that evaluation. And without it, we can't have any confidence in our evaluation of our society. So even the person in North Korea may be able to profit from setting his house in order. This internal work may be the only thing that individuals have over in a, they have a modicum of control over. Peterson explains this phenomenon in his book, 12 Rules for Life. Quote, Solzhenitsyn poured over the details of his life with a fine-toothed comb. He learned to watch and to listen. He found people he admired who were honest despite everything. He took himself apart, piece by piece, let what was unnecessary and harmful die, and resurrected himself. Then he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, a history of the Soviet prison camp system. Solzhenitsyn's writing utterly and finally demolished the intellectual credibility of communism as an ideology or society. One man's decision to change his life shook the whole pathological system of communist tyranny to its core. End quote. So by first focusing on internal change, Solzhenitsyn was able to, able to labor produce external change in the world. And Alexander Riley says, moreover, to produce positive change... By spending our energy exclusively on transformation of an entire existing order would be extremely difficult, if not impossible. The calculable effect produced by any random individual focusing himself on world transformation would be small, not to mention at least some probability that those actions would produce more harm than good as much as social tinkering and engineering can wind up doing, despite good intentions. So it's certainly true that internal work can lead to consequences externally. Internal work will likely result in an outward change that others will have varying reactions to. In some settings, it could get you into trouble with authorities. But it matters that in this case, we encounter those difficulties while doing the work with some possibility of personal efficacy, rather than avoiding that work to pursue the ghostly project of world transformation. He says, in all of these ways, setting our houses in order is always a net positive. It can even potentially become a step toward transforming something beyond ourselves. If others engage in that internal task too, the effects have a chance of extending beyond each of us as individuals. I'll have a link to this in the show notes as well. Strongly recommend you take a look. Changing yourself has more impact than you have been led to believe. I think I'll leave it on that note. This is The Brian Hyde Show.